Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Climate Change in the Multiverse. I'm your host, Kelly Tatham, and I have some exciting news. I have stepped into the world of politics. As we all know, the status quo is failing us. And here in British Columbia, where I live, a snap election was called, giving me and other passionate, activated, intelligent humans the opportunity to step up and stand in their power and take action. Today, I'm really excited to introduce my first guest in this new role, Dr. Mayan Kreitzman. Mayan and I met earlier this year through Extinction Rebellion Vancouver, and I was immediately taken by her passion and intelligence and diligence at doing everything in her power to raise awareness about the climate and ecological crisis. Mayan is a sustainability scientist who just completed her PhD with a focus on environmental, agronomic, and social dimensions of perennial crops and agriculture landscapes. And Mayan is running with me in this election as, as the BC Greens candidate for Vancouver Falls Creek. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for the work that you do. Oh, it's awesome to be here and um, to dip my toes back into the world of podcasting. This is great. Right on. <laughs> so so how are you doing today? You just came off a really um, exciting debate. Yeah. So this morning I was invited to one of the popular morning shows here in Vancouver uh, on CBC to debate the other candidates in, that are running in the same riding as me. Um about climate change and sea level rise, the riding uh, is bordering on on uh, an inlet, and so it's a really important issue. A lot of the riding is infill that's not very stable ground, um, and so it's an issue we need to talk about. And I was happy to because I did a lot of research and I read up all about it. Um, so it was kind of a bit of an adrenaline rush on the morning with uh, getting into this debate. Right on. How did it go? I think it went well. Um, it's one of the it's the first time that I've you know been in the same space as uh, my opponents. Um, one of whom, though, did not bother to show up because uh, probably because their party's policies are like making the problem worse. And they sent somebody in from the Liberals instead to to represent. But yeah, that's disappointing. Um, and I think it's a little scary for the people that live in False Creek that their current MLA, Sam Sullivan, doesn't want to talk about the issue that does threaten people's homes, people's like lifetime earnings, investments, and just their communities. Um, So that's unfortunate. And then the the other opponent, uh, the person that's running for the NDP, um, was very like clearly just reading off a piece of paper, like a prepared kind of like statement, trying to somehow square the circle of their party's climate policy, which includes both climate uh, targets and and fossil fuel reduction emissions reductions, and also development of a fracked gas industry and billions of dollars in subsidies to that industry. So it's very confusing. For, for like reasonable people to understand how that's supposed to work. Um, so I was just trying to point that out and talk about the actual land itself and what we could see in terms of ecosystem restoration and the kinds of um, engineered and natural solutions that we need to see in order to really 
adapt to the reality uh, that we know is coming, even while we try to mitigate the worst outcomes at the same time. Right. And that's, I think we were talking about this yesterday, that's hard for people to hold the fact that we both have to mitigate, we have to build higher seawalls because this is coming, while we're also actively working to reverse it. Yeah, I think it's really hard to hold those two realities. And it's complicated because the second that you start talking about adaptation, um, and it's not just higher seawalls, but maybe I'll mention that in a moment, like, it's the second you start talking about adaptation, and I felt like this for a long time, I was like, I didn't want to talk about adaptation, because to me, that was like failure, that was like, too depressing. Um, but, but I've moved to this place where we have to talk about both at the same time and hold those two realities at the same time. But adaptation doesn't only have to look like higher seawalls, it can also look like restored wetlands that can absorb and soak in. Um, water during flooding seasons um, instead of having hard infrastructure like a seawall that if it gets breached you just have water flooding and running over it. If you have softer shorelines and areas that you've designated and designed in order to absorb um, those impacts it can actually lead to much better outcomes. So ecosystem restoration in engineered ways, in planned ways, um, can be really beneficial and it also has so many other benefits to biodiversity, to re-indigenizing spaces that, um, in the in the case of False Creek, this was a wetland that um, was filled in with soil from somewhere else. Um, so it was a is a wetland that produced abundant food for that the First Nations around here used um, for millennia. And um, you know it's unceded land; it is still their land. So, like consulting with that knowledge about how to adapt these spaces and move them into the next phase is something I think is critical. Um, but I don't, I don't hear the other parties really speaking to that. There's planners at the city of Vancouver that are kind of more with it, which is great. But um, as a province, we need to get with the program and, uh, and have resources available to municipalities um, and regions everywhere that are going to need to make these plans and do them in equitable ways that consult with indigenous knowledge as well. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. The, the green capitalism approach that happens so often, the idea of building higher seawalls instead of returning nature to what it was. Thank you for that. That is so important. And I, I feel what not only are the other parties lacking um, the severity, the urgency of the issue, the solutions that that they're coming with are coming up with are part of that older framework. Yeah, for sure. And 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 I think, I mean, to prepare for this debate, I consulted with a friend of mine who just did a PhD in coastal adaptation to sea level rise. And so there is a lot of expertise and knowledge about um, the kinds of solutions that we can bring forward. But some of those solutions have to do with retreat. They have to do with or at least not building new density in these areas, um, you know, which we're still doing, um, and which is probably not a wise thing to do. Like, we need to think really carefully about the kinds of developments that are being installed in areas that are going to have to be partially reflooded or reflooded during certain types, certain times of the year, um, and we have to plan for those. Um, events and plan for where the water is going to go instead of just trying to protect uh, everything that we have. Um, 
and that protection versus other options like humbly giving some spaces back to nature and um, and creating some regeneration there that ecological functions can can restore is um yeah it's a totally different way of thinking um but but some of the professionals and engineers um and academics that are studying these things are recognizing that and are trying to integrate these hybrid approaches and so i think that that's really great and um i find a lot of um hope in that because um because that integration is so necessary Mm. Yeah, I haven't heard that uh, touched on at all when we're talking about the housing crisis and and where we're going to build build homes for for street and trench folks. Um, that is such a big issue on the ground, and yet we need to be holding the bigger picture. We need to be looking long term, and because we'll just be in another housing crisis in ten or twenty years, depending on how things go. Um, yeah, and exactly, and we need to be careful not to fall into the same patterns of putting housing for vulnerable populations in the most vulnerable spaces mm-hmm. um, because that's just the classic thing of the poor neighborhoods get flooded um, and and then they're you know victimized again mm-hmm. uh, so the planning has to incorporate the vulnerability and the capacities of the populations that live there and um, what their needs are yeah absolutely so I want to talk about another vulnerable popula- population. Uh, some of your friends got arrested earlier this week or charged. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so there's three people um, uh, named Stacy Gallagher, Jim Layden, and Talaham Biga, who are they're three indigenous uh, land defenders. I would call them um, who were three of the couple hundred people that in 2018 got arrested on Burnaby Mountain uh, for getting physically in the way of uh, the construction for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, whose terminal sits in Burnaby near Vancouver, BC. Um, And it was a series of direct actions that took place uh, over the course of that summer. And these three uh, people who happen to be indigenous um, were part of that and were conducting ceremony, being in prayer um, as part of this movement to protect these lands. Mm-hmm. And they were arrested and charged. And they've been going through this lengthy trial process. And finally, on Tuesday, um, they were they got their sentence, which was a month in jail. Um this is for a completely nonviolent, uh, peaceful, I won't even call it a protest. It's protection. It's defense yeah. of land and water. Um, yeah. And it's also uh, an, an act that follows uh, their own systems of law, which, rec- which include certain obligations to the land um, and to the, uh, the First Nations of this land. Um, none of like Stacy, Talaham, and Jim are indigenous, but none of them are from the nations of this land here um, in Vancouver. They're they're guests here as well, but part of their protocols it, uh, are to follow the the rules of the nations that are here 
And those nations, in this specific case, the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, was asking for support in protecting these lands. And so they were following those instructions um, and, and carrying out those obligations. Um, of course, Canada's legal system doesn't really recognize that as a legitimate way of operating in the world. Um, and so they were prosecuted, just like all of the settlers that got arrested. Um, they chose to fight those charges. And so we're only getting to this outcome after a very long, protracted process now. Um, and they were sent to jail, and they're now in jail, um, which is heartbreaking, honestly. Um, yeah, um, I think all of us are sad um, about it because we know, I mean, I know Stacy more personally than Jim and Tawaham, but all three of them are, they contribute in huge ways to the community. They're mm -hmm. spirit people, they're artists, like they're not, they don't need to be in jail. Like yeah. they do not, we do not need to be protected as a society against these amazing humans who are always helping and protecting and, and healing wherever they go. Um, and they were sitting in peace and ceremony, blocking a pipeline that is aggravating the climate crisis, driving carbon emissions, and taking away all of our futures. And they were sitting there protecting us from that. Yes. And like, I think, like with other injustices in history, it's like our legal systems haven't caught up to reality yet. It's still illegal to protect but legal to destroy um and that's just and so like with so many other movements in history where people have had to break the law um to do what is ethically and morally correct it's just another example of that i mean we know we have to resist these uh ecocidal projects like we just can't survive if they go forward and so but the fact that like canadian law is still criminalizing these people even more so indigenous people that have their own legal system and their own uh spiritual and legal traditions that they are obligated to um is it's really unconscionable and like and the what's most upsetting as well is like there's so many indigenous people in prisons right now. And there's been so many reports about how there's over incarceration of indigenous people and the like prosecutions are supposed to follow these guidelines to seek other solutions first and restorative justice and, and, you know, like justice circles. And there's all these other ways there's, there's other ways to, to do this, but like to just take, put them behind bars, um, during a pandemic when COVID is in prisons, um, it's, yeah. And I don't know what to say. they were given the fullest um, sentence. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 The full 28 days. Um, and it's four weeks in prison. Like it's, it's not nothing. Um, these are really good people. It's, yeah. yeah. It's our legal system. A judge sat in a court and decided that, these people who are defending our future deserve the fullest extent of the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she like, I mean, she is following 
her precedents, her rules, whatever. But just from sitting in court and listening to her, she was incredibly disrespectful. She did not want to under she did not want to understand anything about the indigenous law or um or the arguments around those sets of obligations and legal traditions. And those are recognized under Canadian law to an extent. But she just did not want to listen to that. She kept asking, like, how is this relevant? Um, she's just very dismissive, der- derisive. She was sneering at the lawyer's um, explanations of these things. And you could just see where her heart was from the very beginning. Um, so I don't think it was fair um, just from my you know, like one day of sitting in that courtroom, it was shocking. It was disturbing. Like I came home really upset that day. Um, and my partner is a lawyer and I kind of complained about it to him. And I was like, I really hope you never have to participate in something like that. Cause it was freaking terrible. <laughs> like it was just creepy and disturbing the way that the, the way that these people had to be in supplication to this judge mm-hmm. um, in a really over-the-top like way that just emphasizes the the power difference and um, and just how dominant the colonial uh, legal structures are vis-a-vis these other ways of being and mm-hmm. um, and conducting yourself. Which are not just like you do whatever you want. Um, these are protocols. These are ways of being that have legitimacy, and they have certain rules and certain um, protocols. And so, but seeing those disrespected so much, like it was just disturbing. Um, it wasn't even she wasn't even pretending to try to understand these things. It was just a real like showcase of a colonial legal system that is functioning badly. Yeah. Or functioning as it was designed to yeah. function. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I think what enough people um, don't sit with is that the system was designed this way and that we made it up, you know, it, it, it's not like it was handed down to us and this is the way things have to be run. It, it's a system that was built, um, on, on white supremacist values. And I say white with a capital W, not necessarily representing um, Caucasian individuals, but a white framework, a white ideology that includes hierarchies of power uh, and consumption and extraction as values. And the, um, the belief that, uh, individual, that we are individuals instead of communities. And so I, I don't. Th- I hope that that judge who made that decision didn't start her career in that place. I, I I can only hope or assume or imagine that she wanted to be balanced and make change. Perhaps not, but I think that the system, no matter who you are, can corrupt you because that is how the system is designed to retain those structures of power. Yeah, and it's so clear um, in in these court process processes. Again, just from that one day how the system can beat you down because the the lawyer that was representing um, <clears throat> Stacy and Talham, she made a very eloquent argument and brought a lot of information uh, about indigenous legal traditions um, and the protocols that were being followed. Um, but 
her her stance within the courtroom was still like one of supplication to this judge and so so within those traditions it's i don't know it's 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 so hierarchical just in the way that it's set up it didn't feel fair um and um and i don't know like i think there is there is progress being made within uh canadian law on integrating indigenous law and integrating um some of those systems into a colonial legal system but it's kind of slow progress and i can see why yeah yeah so how are we and in particular you gonna uh push for change inside the system not the legal system but the political system i know a big part of your platform is citizens assemblies and i think for people to understand um, how the system is currently operating, because we just, again, assume this is the way it is, so this is what we do. Um, how can it be different? Yeah. Oh, great segue, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so citizens' assemblies are a deliberative democracy process. Um, I, hope I'll, I, I hope I'm able to keep people with me here, because it can feel a little, like, wonkish and boring to talk about these processes, but actually I think they're fascinating and they hold a lot of promise um, in contrast to the deadlock that we've experienced in elected political systems. That can be effective sometimes, but on other issues we've just seen that they're deadlocked and they're not effective. Like on the climate and ecological crisis, there's literally no elected government or any government in the world that has responded appropriately. Um, that has responded in line with the science, uh, the very like mainstream agreed upon science of the IPCC, and that's why you see climate scientists getting like increasingly hysterical uh, about the threats that we're facing. Um, and so the question is like, as as governments, how how do we improve governance and democratic structures so that they're actually able to respond? And so. A process-oriented answer to that is by improving our democratic structures. And citizens' assemblies are, are a good way to do that. And citizens' assemblies are basically assemblies of normal citizens um, that are put together through random lottery that is stratified by demographics so that you have about a representative sample of a population. Once you get above something like 100 or so people, it's easy to do that. Um, and get a demographically representative slights. Um, and they, they are given knowledge, resources, experts, and professional facilitation over a process um, that they get paid to participate in, to take time off of their lives to participate in. And at the end of it, they come up with recommendations or decisions about things. And it sounds simple. It really isn't that complicated. But um, these citizens' assemblies uh, can really create very, um, they can create strong public mandates for actions on solutions uh, for governments to take action on, where just collecting people's opinions without a deliberative process does not. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of moving from using engagement with public opinion as a way to guide policy to a, a more deliberative process where 
at the end of it, there is actual public judgment after a deliberation. And that's what moving into a more deliberative democracy looks like. Um, and these have been used all over the world very successfully, um, usually on specific issues. But what I'm advocating for, and this is the third demand of Extinction Rebellion, is that we implement citizens' assemblies on climate and ecological justice, because we've seen that governments are not coming up with the solutions using the current democratic structures. We need to upgrade our democracies, incorporate these citizens' assemblies in order to actually adequately figure out what the solutions are and implement them. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Because n not enough is being done. I, I, I so appreciate you saying that no government in the world is taking enough action. I think very few people understand the urgency. Um, I know that they put up a, a climate countdown clock in New York recently saying that we have seven years to act. And that infuriated me. I just, you know, seven years to act, like we need to be acting yesterday. We need to be acting 10 years ago. It's just, we're in so much trouble right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, d I also don't really like those kinds of countdown situations because it, it's kind of a weird framing. Yeah. We, sh we need to act now. It's not like we can wait to act till later. We're in like negative time right now. And, um, but the fact is that with elected governments, they have a four year sort of time horizon that they're operating within. And, they have all these vested interests that are pulling and pushing them in different directions. They're dealing with with public opinion, which is sometimes not very informed. Um, and that's also subject to manipulation and to all these special interests that are, that are pulling and pushing public opinion. And so through a deliberative process that people go through, that really is something transformative um, because through deliberation and learning and discussing with other people, with professional facilitation, people really are able to change their minds um, and learn and really process a, a subject um, in a way that we, we don't really do in our normal lives if we're not experts on a particular thing. Um, and so, and so like, if some people might ask, okay, well, if so few people understand the urgency, what's the point of having a randomly selected assembly of people? They won't understand it either. Well, the key is in that deliberation process and in the learning and um, discussing process that people go through, which on the other end of it, there is some transformation that happens within that. Um, and it might not always be for everything that I personally agree with. But I would trust the outcomes of that much more than I trust the outcomes uh, of even an elected government, which is operating on these short timelines and um, is and we've seen is like very easily corruptible. Um, and we've seen the evidence of that, for instance, here in BC with with the government making promises to cut carbon emissions, but then at the same time developing and investing in a fracking industry. Um, that doesn't make sense. And I really don't think that a citizen's assembly, after they've deliberated and gone through a process where they are talking to experts and um, coming up with solutions, I don't think a citizen's assembly would, would continue with that. Mm -hmm. I really don't.
it makes no logical sense. No. When you're close to it, when you're presented with the real facts, when it's not just abstract. And I think that there's, there's so much confusion. We're not getting, we're not getting the clear picture and our, our last government, we thought we were getting an environmentally friendly government. They, they had, they ran on all sorts of promises that they didn't fulfill. And because it isn't as present for people in their day to day and everyone's still struggling to get by, uh, many people are struggling to pay rent, especially in this pandemic, and they don't have the, the capacity to think about the more existential problems. And so they're trusting the people in power to make the right decisions, but they're not being given the full information and they're being told that we need to keep doing things the same way when that is just so far from the truth. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm holding myself back in, in, in this political position um, because I often speak to our need for complete revolution. And I, I don't know where I'm able to land yet in terms of working within the system and calling for revolution at the same time. Do you think that if our political system stays the same way, um, that we will see real change? And what other kind of shifts or revolution are you looking for within the system? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm i a little hesitant to use the word revolution. I mean, because to me, revolution has a very, re- like, we do see actual coups and, like, and where governments are overthrown around the world. And I don't necessarily want to see that happen here. What I want is for our democracy to adopt citizens' assemblies in a really big way so that we can upgrade the democracy that we have so that it's fit for purpose uh, and so that it's not so easily corruptible and so that it overcomes the many weaknesses that we see in these elected democracies. Um, but revolution can also be used in a more like more as more of an analogy. Um, in in the way that we're thinking and 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 in that way i think that uh integrating citizens assemblies on climate and ecological justice and even on other issues that have become intractable or um deadlocked is a good idea because these structures can break those deadlocks and move forward and and have public trust in a way that uh individual parties cannot um so I think it is a revolutionary mechanism within democracy that can really make a difference, uh, make a fundamental difference. Um, and there are some technicalities around, like, can citizens' assemblies actually make binding decisions from a constitutional point of view, et cetera, et cetera. And we can get into that. But but even if they don't make binding decisions, if they are given a really um, serious mandate, then I think then elected governments will be forced to reckon with their recommendations and will be forced to account for why those recommendations aren't being implemented in a way that's much more powerful than just political parties complaining about each other. Um, People don't find that particularly compelling because they have a vested interest in complaining about each other because they want to be in power themselves. With citizens' assemblies, it's not like that. They're normal people. They're never going to run for office, necessarily. Probably not. They're just going to, you know, go back to their lives. 
they're not politicians. And so the vested interests of all the kinds of vilification and also broken promises that people make in politics aren't there. Um, so even without like changing the constitution so that citizens' assemblies actually replace uh, some of the powers of elected government, which I personally would support, <laughs> but even without that, um, I think they can function in, in a really powerful way if they are like, if they're um, given a robust mandate to come back with, with um, solutions that are going to be taken seriously. Absolutely. And I think the more that people understand how citizens' assemblies work and how they're not participating, um, they're just giving their opinion. They're not, not actually giving their judgment when it comes to policy decisions, when it comes to how our world runs. When they understand that they could reclaim that power and be involved, um, I think that people will really be on board. I found that since stepping into this role that there's an inherent distrust for politicians. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm selling myself. I'm selling an ideology. And I understand where the distrust comes from because we've been burned all the time. But here I am as a person who's worked as an activist and, and worked as a communicator just trying to make things better. And I feel like it's such a weird position to be in saying, oh, please listen to me. Understand that this is... And, and so I'm realizing that it's it's not just the inherent distrust of the politician. It's the it's the design of the system and, and how people understand perhaps on a, a subconscious level that you're like, that this isn't working. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree that it's not just the individual politicians that feel distrustful. It's like the political system, which we've seen not function very well over the, on this issue of the climate and ecological crisis, but also on some other issues. And, um, and people rightfully are very wary of that. And so, yeah, I think thinking about systemic and process-based changes might not be as exciting as making a particular promise for an outcome, but it can be all the more powerful because it's setting up a system that <clears throat> that isn't as vulnerable to those weaknesses. Um, and... It, and similarly to electoral reform, I mean, people talk about, about having a citizens' assembly on electoral reform um, to move towards a proportional representation system. Um, and we've had one of those before in BC. But what happened was it was subject then to a referendum. And then, so basically you're taking public judgment, which was the outcome of a deliberative citizens' assembly, and then subjecting that back to public opinion which is a referendum where you just ask people what they think right now. Um, and so, yeah, I would support uh, another citizens' assembly about electoral reform, but without going to a referendum afterwards. Um, and uh, same with a citizens' assembly on climate and ecological justice. We don't need to then subject the very robust outcomes from a deliberative process to mere public opinion afterwards because um, those outcomes are of a higher quality um, and they really are more representative of the population as a whole <clears throat> than even asking people what they think right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would like to implement those immediately. <laughs> Agreed.
<laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing. Um, we'll put links in the show notes to um, how people can support Jim, Tracy, and to all of them. Pardon me, I'm saying the name wrong. I get so nervous and I don't want to <laughs> um, Tawaham, um, and how we can support them. And financially, um, getting the word out there, um, to my mind, this is the heart of what we're dealing with, um, it, putting Indigenous land defenders in prison for trying to protect all of us is just beyond. Um, so we need to create, be creating more noise around that and supporting them however we can. Um, we'll also link to your incredible paper on citizens' assemblies that has lots of links to um, examples all over the world, how it succeeded. Um, very compelling argument. I don't understand how we've gotten this far without making these changes, except to, to recognize that the system, the way it is, wants to retain its power, but we're here to shift it. Yeah. Um, you can learn more about Mayan at bcgreens.ca slash Mayan underscore Kreitzman. And you can follow her on Instagram at, what's your handle? Ooh, um, oh, I think it's just my first and last name, Mayan Kreitzman. Somebody else runs it for me, I refuse. Oh, good for you. That's, <laughs> that's a whole other thing, the trap of social media, but we won't get in th into that today because no. it's not entirely a trap, but there's a lot of complexities at play there that need to be unpacked. For sure. Thanks so much, Kelly. It was really a delight to talk to you. I feel like we could talk about these things forever, um, but there's just so much rich richness in these topics and we can go so deep with them. Um, so thank you so much for creating space to talk about Stacy, Jim, and Tawahum. It's very under the radar. Mainstream media does not like to cover this. Um, and so I'm very grateful. Of course. Yeah. And we'll keep everyone updated. And uh, I hope that we can, we can expand upon these conversations sometime soon. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs>